0: This is Focal Point for Thursday, the 2nd of April, and we're talking about open access. Welcome to Focal Point, the podcast that shows you how to tap into the power of the internet in your business and your life. Now it's over to your hosts, Chris Padney and Gihan Pereira, for this week's edition. Hello, Chris. How are you going? I'm very well, thanks, Gihan. How are you? I'm happy. I'm happy. So we're going to be talking about this topic called open access which is about actually open access to government information and we have a little bit of a follow-up story from one of the things that we talked about last time which was about the New Zealand government and how they are bowing to the pressure of the recording industry, forcing internet service providers to ban the internet accounts of their citizens, so do you want to talk about that Chris and the follow-up story that we just came across recently?
1: Yeah, so in our last podcast where we talked about uh, regulation of the internet, we mentioned that um, the New Zealand government were going to introduce some legislation that was effectively a 3 strikes tenure out policy whereby if the recording industry accused um, an internet user of um, infringing on their copyright, if that happened more than three times, then the um, user's ISP was obliged to cut off their access. So we thought that was uh, pretty draconian in that there was, no, uh, there was no assumption of innocence as we're, as we're used to expecting. Uh, and in normal law, it was pretty much up to the recording industry simply to accuse someone three times and that would be it. The ISP would cut off their access. So that was pretty bad news, the, the proposal that that was going to be introduced. But uh, the New Zealand government has uh, had second thoughts and there's been quite a bit of protest in New Zealand. And so they've suspended uh, their plans to introduce that legislation. So that's pretty good news.
0: It is good news. And in fact, there's another, there's a related story in the U.S. One of their big service providers, I think it was AT&T, um, they made an announcement that if the recording industry, the RIAA, over there, uh, asked them to ban the account of any of their clients or any of their customers they would refuse to do it. They would send them a warning letter saying, hey, we found that oh, the recording industry is accusing you of downloading illegal material, but we but. They have come out and said publicly that they're not going to close down anybody's accounts. They said it's against their their terms and conditions and so that's good as well.
1: Yes, thank goodness that they're actually um, looking after their customers' interest as opposed to bowing to pressure from lobby groups.
0: That's right. That's right. So today we're going to be talking about uh, another side of government which is government information being available uh, openly and uh, being available for citizens to use and sometimes it's not just for citizens to read but sometimes for them to, to reuse as well.
1: Yeah, that's right, Kiha. a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about um, the digital economy. So the Australian government and the US government and various governments around the world um, have set up initiatives to try and tap into the internet to help develop their economies. And the Australian government in December last year, 2008, they set up a blog where they talked about this sort of thing. And one of the aspects of... Um, developing a digital economy in Australia was the idea of providing open access to public sector information. So that's providing free access, including reading and reusing any information that's collected by government agencies.
0: Yes, Chris, and this is actually something that more and more government agencies are doing there. But I remember the first time I remember seeing something like this was many years ago with NASA, and NASA has a number of photographs and images from its space probes, and uh, probably from Earth-based telescopes as well, and you go to the NASA website and you look at their terms of use, and many, if not all, of their photos they make available in the public domain for anybody to use. I guess they were looking at researchers, students, but it's really available for anybody to use. And at the time I thought, how amazing. And then later I thought, well, you know, this is public information, and it's taxpayers' dollars. Uh, Admittedly, they're U.S. taxpayers, but it applies to governments all around the world.
1: That's right, so this idea of providing um, open access to government data sets in particular isn't a particularly new idea, Um, it's just that governments are starting to think more seriously about um, developing digital economies, and so many um, agencies, NASA's one you've just mentioned, and many Australian agencies have been doing this for a while as it's part of their mission, like uh, the Bureau of Meteorology, they're supposed to provide weather forecasts and historical climate data, and they make that available over the web. Well, via the internet, not just over the web, um, so as a consequence, um, I have on my desktop a little widget in my toolbar that allows me to see the current weather conditions, 18 degrees Celsius according to it at the moment, fine and sunny, <laughs> it says now, um, and provides me with a, a five-day five day forecast and a radar map, and that's all provided uh, via the uh, Bureau of Meteorology's um, uh, one of their servers.
0: Um, so I'm curious, Chris, is that actually that widget that you're talking about? I know it's retrieving data from the Bureau of Meteorology. Is a widget provided by the Bureau?
1: No, it's just um, a third-party bit of software that's part of the um, Ubuntu desktop that operating system that I use. That's a Linux operating system. But I know that there are ones for Windows that um, all kinds of people prov- um, have developed, and they just tap into various web servers, uh, weather web servers around the world to uh, provide that locality's weather information.
0: So I think there's two things that have changed recently, Chris. So We talked about NASA just making those images available. I think two developments have happened more recently. One is that uh, more organisations are making that information available for people to use and secondly there are people created, third parties creating widgets and other ways to mash up, is the technical term that's used, to to take information from various sources and present it in different ways and maybe more useful ways for a certain group of people than the original people providing the data.
1: Yeah, that's one of the great things about uh, this whole open access idea. It's not just allowing you to access the information but you can reuse it in many cases um, however you like so you mentioned mashups a lot of mashups try and take advantage of Google's mapping service. So, for instance, if you go to a Google map of any um, Western Australian um, locality, then you can see the bus stops and train stops and ferry stops, and if you click on those, it'll tell you uh, when the next bus, train or ferry is arriving. So it's it's mashed up some information from Google Maps and some information from TransPerth, which is Western Australia's public trans, uh, transport facility. And I remember a, a few months ago, sometime last year, Gihan, we were talking about FuelWatch, which again, it's another government agency who provide information about uh, petrol prices in the Western Australian, um, in, in Western Australia. And we thought, wouldn't it be a good idea if we did a mashup whereby you could look at a Google map or some map and see uh, the prices of petrol uh, provided by FuelWatch in your on, on the map somewhere, but um, someone had already had that good idea. So, but that again, that's the sort of thing that open access facilitates. You can take information from various sources and mash it up with Google Maps or some other service, and uh, have a really useful um, service provided.
0: Yeah, and so the, it seems to be the mapping service is the one that's being used the most at the moment. And I guess with people using things like iPhones, other mobile devices, that's going to be more and more common where you might be out and about. So you're not just sitting in your home or your office and looking at your computer, but you might be out and about and you pull out your iPhone and have a look at where you can get cheap, the cheapest petrol close to you.
1: That's right. And you don't, Or you can just say, actually, it's raining right now.
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> I must turn my windscreen wipers on. <laughs> so, Chris, the other thing is uh, the the other side of that, as I mentioned, is the licensing and the the, the copyright issues around that. So, some agencies and organisations make their information available, but that does, just because it's available doesn't mean that you have the right to use it. Uh, so there's still the copyright issue around that but more and more organisations, particularly government agencies, are now licensing information to be used the same way that NASA did many years ago and has done for many years.
1: Yeah, uh, last year or maybe it was even the year before Focal Point's been going for a while now, we talked about the Creative Commons licences and a recent announcement um, by the Australian Bureau of Statistics was, is that they're going to release their data under one of the Creative Commons licences in fact it's uh, Creative Commons 2.5, which means that you can um, access it and then you can reuse it in any way you like as long as you provide some kind of attribution information along with uh, your redistribution or reuse of that data. So that's uh, really powerful and the Creative Commons licences I think are are well understood and more and more um, public sector information is being uh, re-licensed using the Creative Commons licences.
0: Another area that's where this happened, Chris, is uh, MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the USA. For many years now, they have been pioneering the idea of um, academic institutions making information available freely. And they were probably the first academic institution that made their course material available online. So you could anybody could go along and get access to all the course material. And recently, their faculty have decided to make their publications open access as well
1: yeah that's yeah that that initiative you spoke about with their open coursework is is really powerful. I mean you have to pay a lot of money to uh, to do a course at, at MIT to be an enrolled student. It's tens of thousands of u s dollars a year, but you could also do it for free without even having to go to Boston. You can uh, use that courseware online from Perth uh, for free that's really amazing and the more recent development that you mentioned whereby um, all of their, pub- their faculty publications are going to be made publicly available, uh, is another another great step forward. Typically, academics publish their um, research findings in academic journals and copyright is signed over to the publisher of that journal, which, um, again, means you have to subscribe to the journal, pay a lot of money to be able to read those articles. Uh, so MIT are breaking new ground by um, making their, their faculty's publications open access.
0: So I wonder where we're going, Chris. I wonder with all this information being available free, I wonder whether there is potential for, for people still to make money from it, or, or people still to value things like academic journals and value things like information, or whether we're going to a stage where information is going to be available free, and what people are going to be valuing is the way that you can collate and present that information in, in relevant and, and engaging ways.
1: Yeah, that's it's it's a very disruptive concept, Gihan, and um not confident about making any predictions about what that means for the future, um, but certainly we need there to be ways for people to uh, to create an industry around this free information. We don't want to try and do what a lot of the recording industry and um, publishers are trying to do, which is quash any mo- any movements to, to allow open access. I do know, for instance, that some of the um, academic journals and publishers are pushing against the kinds of uh, initiatives that MIT have announced. I know, for instance, in the United States, that publicly funded research um, must be made publicly available because taxpayers have funded it, after all, and so it needs to be publicly available after one year. And there was quite a lot of lobbying effort to try and um, counter counter that that kind of movement. So um, I think uh, it would be sensible if if uh, publishers and other groups actually embraced this change and and found other ways of sort of leveraging this free information.
0: And there's a real conflict here because if you compare that with, say, the patent process, so patents were first invented to encourage creativity because it, it gave people an incentive when they created something, they could have exclusive use of that for a number of years, which means that they could make money from it, which perhaps, we, which did. Prohibit other people from getting access to the same thing, but also encourage creativity because there was actually a financial incentive to create something unique and then patent it. At the same time, as you say, you don't want you don't want people quashing initiatives. So the, the extreme version of that is that now patents are created for the tiniest little thing, which actually discourages other people from being creative. So there's a there's a There's a fine balance to be struck here. I remember reading a book by Andrew Keene recently called "The The Cult of the Amateur, where he was bemoaning the fact that because the internet is now much more egalitarian and much more democratic and anyone can be anyone can be a publisher, he was saying that you know, traditional industries like the recording industry like newspapers and mainstream media are going to die out because they just won't have the funds to be able to pay reporters and artists to to create material and that's going to be bad for society because we won't get the same level of we won't get the same quality and depth that we get because we do have paid journalists, reporters and uh, and music artists.
1: Yeah it's it's a, a point uh, that lots of people have made, and it, it's a very disruptive, um, a disruptive con- concept. The idea of broad, open access to all kinds of information, and and uh, he's right about things like newspapers are finding it, are laying off staff left, right, and centre because fewer and fewer people are paying to get their news. They're using free news services. They're they're looking at blogs instead, and so advertising revenues are falling. Um, So maybe we will see the death of newspapers, but we're going to see the rise of something else in its place. So it's not all necessarily bad
0: yeah i'd like to think that, that there will be something taking its place and maybe we're sitting here on the cusp of something new that said i mean if we if we restrict our conversation to what's happening with the government information the so public sector information i think it's most of us would say that yeah there is a we have a right to that information, and the more information that we get access to, the better.
1: That's right, and I think that's why um, when the governments are starting to think about digital economies, they've recognised that providing open access to, to public sector info is is an important and valuable thing. It's, it's something that's going to help their economies to flourish rather than... Uh, not providing access to this information and not empowering um, businesses and individuals in their, in their societies to make good use of that info.
0: Yeah, and I guess it depends like how far governments are willing to go to be transparent and open. Uh, and perhaps they'd be quite happy to provide weather information openly and they'd be less inclined to provide stuff that's politically sensitive, which they might feel... Uh, means that they have less control they probably don't mind us finding out about what the weather's going to be like over the next five days, but they might be quite um cagey about telling us con- con- conversations that are going on at our levels to see where where lobby groups and other people are influencing the way that the way that our servants who are our government are operating and and running the country
1: yes, I mean it's thirty years before we actually find out uh, what uh, transpires in the cabinet room i think it's it's about 30 years in Australia. I don't know what it's like in other countries. but uh, So I think it might be a long time before we find a wiki with uh, cabinet discussions um, <laughs> released on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, which is, uh, and on one sense, you could say, well, why, why shouldn't it be released now? Why shouldn't we have access to what the people that we've elected to service are discussing?
1: Yeah, yeah. Governments are always banging on about how they're going to be open and transparent, and so one would imagine that uh, something like open access is exactly the sort of thing that they should be supporting and uh, delivering if they really are... um if they really are meaningful when they're talking about being a transparent agency.
0: The, the other angle to this, Chris, is, is of course we've, we've talked about two things. First of all, we've talked about raw data being available, so weather information, map information, and petrol prices. We've also talked about access to governments, and the, the people in government, but the other side of it is governments providing access to citizens' information, and I guess we've got to be careful about privacy and security when we have government departments providing information that could identify people, you know, either deliberately or accidentally.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's, that's a really good point. And um, I was reading an article a few weeks ago by a journalist who uh, was writing in Computer World, which is an online magazine, and he was just trying to find out how much information is out there about him. And the richest source of information that he was able to find was via online government records. So he was able to recover... He's a US journalist, so he was able to recover his social security number, his address, occupation, an image of his signature, um, which is quite astonishing. So the potential for identity theft um, just by uh, sort of trawling through public government records um, is quite large there. So... You're absolutely right. It's on the one hand having open access to public sector information is very powerful, but it needs to be done uh, sensitively in order to preserve and protect uh, the privacy of citizens.
0: And we need to hold governments to a higher standard than we hold private organizations, I think. I, I, I'm not sure that everyone would agree with that, but I think with private organizations, at least we have a choice. If we find out that they're pretty weak or they're they're a bit lazy or ill-disciplined with their privacy and security, we can choose not to work with them. Whereas with government information, we have no choice. The government has information about us, and we have the right to request that or to to insist that they keep it private and, uh, and they follow a higher standard of privacy than we'd expect from somebody that we do have choice with. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So what does this mean for everyone? Uh, one of the conclusions that we can draw is that this is something that's not going to go away. We're probably going to have more access to more information than ever before and probably have access to things like you're talking about, Chris, where we've got widgets and Google Street Maps that mashups that actually make that information more accessible and more useful than ever before.
1: That's right, Kihan, yeah. I guess it it remains to be seen how serious governments are about this kind of issue. As you mentioned before, there's certain sensitive information that uh, governments might not want uh, their citizens gaining access to, Um, and in a lot of cases it might just be paying lip service to these sorts of things. So we had Grocery Choice, uh, uh, a website that the government set up sometime last year, which is really just quite useless. There was a lot of... um, a lot of unrest in the uh, in Australia about uh, price fixing amongst the large grocers, um, and so the government got on its high horse and set up this Grocery Choice website, which was meant to empower citizens to find better prices for their groceries. But it's almost entirely unusable. So um, let's hope the governments are really serious about it and um, and really put their put some some effort into making information available and usable as well.
0: I was listening to a client of mine who was using Twitter and as we're recording this is around about the time of the G20 summit Mm -hmm. where the top nations get together, the leaders of the top nations get together and my client Ian Berry, he asked a question on Twitter, he said what would the world be like if politicians weren't the world's leaders and I replied to him and I said well they're already not (laughs) and maybe that's a little bit hopeful Uh, so perhaps I was just looking a little bit ahead in the future but I think we're getting to a stage where citizens have more power than ever before, we're demanding more of our governments in terms of releasing information and it will just simply be the expectation in the future that governments do provide access and we do have information and as you say, if information is power then more power to governments who provide it
1: Absolutely, yeah. Yep, and that's the way it should be, I mean we are supposed to be it's, we, the politicians are supposed to be our servants rather than the other way around
0: Yep. And so I think we're, we're looking for and we'll be demanding for more open access. And, and I guess for people listening to this podcast, look out for more opportunities where governments are providing open access. And if they're not, um, perhaps lobby them to provide that sort of information. Indeed. Yep. Good. Well, thank you, Chris. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. A pleasure, Gihan. Speak to you then. Okay. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Focal Point podcast. You can find us on the web at www.gihanperera.com forward slash podcast. That's G-I-H-A-N-P-E-R-E-R-A dot com. Subscribe to the podcast, listen to all our past issues, or leave us your comments and questions. We look forward to having you back next time.